calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and for this episode, we're going to talk about risk. Risk has been a hot topic in recent months as we covered it from the DEI perspective with Jason Lamine and Lennox Park in early October, and from a behavioral perspective in picking individual stocks with AI guru Arezu Magadam and JP Morgan in early November. Today, the main question I'd like to answer is, how can portfolio managers better assess risk and use analytics to manage risk across the portfolio. I'm pleased to welcome Reshma Rajagopalan to the show to help us get a handle on these questions. Reshma is a quant and analytics specialist at FactSet. And welcome, Reshma. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start our conversation with a couple of definitions. So what is risk and what does it mean to incur unrewarded risk? That's a great question. Very simply put, risk is just uncertainty. It represents a chance that an investment's return might be different than expected, and all investors are going to have different risk tolerances, which will inform how much risk they're willing to take on in order to generate returns. I think it's interesting to talk about how to measure or define risk because it can be assessed through more than one dimension, depending on an investor's goals. And that process of determining what those dimensions are, I think, is actually a very important step in the investment process. One of the most common ways that we see risk being defined in the industry is with metrics like standard deviation, expected volatility, tracking error is another one that I'm sure everyone's heard of. And these are all measures of variability or dispersion around some mean. So they essentially capture changes on both the upside and the downside. But what I think can be often more intuitive in, in terms of thinking about risk is defining it in terms of loss, which is how people intrinsically tend to categorize risk. Thinking about things in terms of loss entails including left tail metrics like value at risk, expected tail loss, as well as metrics like drawdown or the pain ratio into your analysis. And the pain ratio is something that's very akin to sort of a sharp ratio, but it uses a drawdown measure as your your risk measure in the denominator. I think there are also other ancillary factors that might not be as easily quantifiable as some of the, the metrics that I just mentioned, but are still very important measures to incorporate into a decision-making framework. So for example, diversity within a portfolio, thinking about whether there's good diversification with respect to the return drivers and underlying factors in the portfolio in addition to the specific assets that you hold so that changes in your portfolio's value are not overwhelmingly dependent on a single source of risk. And I think there are also other non-investment related risks that, that need to be taken into account. So political risk and liability risk are a couple examples that, again, have some bearing on what the best quality portfolio is going to look like. I think this kind of nicely leads us into the notion of rewarded versus unrewarded risks. It's one thing to quantify the total risk or uncertainty in a portfolio, but crucial to understand beyond that is what is driving that risk and where is it actually coming from in the portfolio? 
So if we think about financial market theory, the way that you earn a return on an asset theoretically comes from assuming various risks that could cause the stock or the asset to drop in value and earning or generating a premium on top of that. So I think this is one of the strongest arguments for why it's important to focus on risk exposures and incorporate a risk budgeting perspective into your portfolio construction process and to be intentional about gaining broad exposure to the right types of risks. So this is where the process of or the exercise of risk budgeting allows investors to put just a clearer focus on allocating towards rewarded risks and away from unrewarded risks. So let's talk about risk budgeting there and specifically working with an ex-ante risk model to bring a more sophisticated approach to identifying and managing those risks. I wonder if you could take a take us through an example of maybe how that works in practice. Sure. So I want to start by framing a little bit what risk budgeting is really about, which is the process of taking your beliefs or your risk appetite and tolerance and then translating that into a portfolio that has the best chance of meeting your objectives. So it's very natural to think about asset allocation in terms of capital, right? If we take the classic 60-40 portfolio, for example, an investor is going to allocate based on percentage to each of those asset classes and then periodically rebalance to maintain those percentages as asset prices move over time. So it's very straightforward. It's easy to monitor and implement. And it's easy to understand why many institutional investors and advisors tend to lean towards that approach. But dollar value alone doesn't drive the proportion of risk that an investment or asset class contributes to a portfolio. And so thinking about asset allocation in terms of risk or risk budgeting can be a little bit less natural because it may not be immediately obvious that 60% of the equity in your portfolio is driving something more like 80 to 90% of the risk. So that 80 to 90% of risk, I think, can stem from a variety of underlying sources or factors. And that's where an ex-ante factor-based risk model comes into play. It really helps to answer the question of how can we identify, you know, what are the right factors to be focusing on and how much exposure do we have to them? When I talk about factors, that can really be any driving force that affects a, an asset's return or a portfolio's return. So a couple quick examples would be interest rates, growth, value, momentum, quality. I would say that there isn't necessarily a single universally accepted way of defining what all of these return drivers are, but there's probably a reasonable degree of understanding as to what the main risk premium are. And this is why it's important to have a well-constructed ex-ante risk model that can help you hone in on those right factors to pay attention to and then establish a relationship between them using volatility and correlation assumptions. So to kind of recap the first couple of things we've covered here, just if I make sure I'm understanding it correctly. So you, you're defining risk, first of all, in terms of your clients and what they're focused on. And you've got, obviously, different types of clients will have different types of focuses on risk. Institutional clients obviously often have a relative return or relative risk focus, and you're getting into tracking error. In that territory, private clients often have a more absolute return focus. Everybody likes to not lose money. So you get value at risk, you get some of these downside risk uh, captures. And then you, you set about with your risk budgeting, you set about trying to identify what the factors are that might inf impact your portfolio. And, and are we talking about looking at an existing portfolio and then sort of trying to assess 
how exposed are we? For example, you know, maybe you've got a lot of financials, you've got some utilities, you've got things that are really interest rate sensitive in the portfolio, and your and this exercise can help surface the fact that you have a higher higher exposure to that factor than maybe is healthy long term for for avoiding the downside that you're trying to manage through this risk management exercise. Is that close, or, or maybe you could help clarify for me if not? Exactly. So I like to think of, of the way that you use an ex-ante risk model as essentially getting an x-ray into your portfolio to understand when you look at a security, what is the DNA of that security and what's driving its return fundamentally? Is it largely idiosyncratic or is it because the asset has some significant exposure to the quality factor, for example? So I think risk models and risk assessment tools have been something that traditionally are thought to be more quant focused. And a lot of the time they're they're potentially overlooked somewhat by a lot of more fundamental focused investors. But I do believe that they can have a lot of value in supporting a fundamental focused strategy and taking an existing portfolio and looking at that through a different lens to understand where you can factor in return drivers to your decisions versus having to fight against them and have them work against your portfolio. I think this is particularly the case when you're working with more than one asset class, where you have to account for not just the intra-asset class relationships, but also the inter-asset class relationships. So kind of like what you mentioned just now, Mike, let's say you're invested in you know large cap equity, small cap equity, investment grade bonds, and, and you have some overlap in terms of the sectors or things that you're exposed to in, in the portfolio from an investment perspective. There are going to be certain driving factors across each of those investments and asset classes, like inflation, for example, that are going to be common and affect each asset class to an extent, potentially in different amounts in different directions. But having that X-ray into the exposures of your investment can help you understand if there are tweaks that you need to make or potentially factors that you need to hedge out to some extent or tilt away from so that they don't eat away from the returns that you've identified in the rest of your unique investment process. So Reshma, in the in the classical approach to uh, portfolio allocations, portfolio managers would use the efficient frontier as a way to sort of try to narrow in on the most efficient way to allocate between asset classes to sort of maximize that risk return profile for the portfolio. So do these tools help you effectively better define the risks that you're exposed to so that you can better understand the true shape of that frontier so that you can hit that sweet spot before before it levels off and you're and you're taking again back to the unrewarded risk question. Yeah, I think the ex ante risk models can certainly be a tool to help supplement that analysis. So when we're talking about an efficient frontier and and looking at where those trade-offs are going to be, having an understanding of you know, from a factor perspective, what factors are performing well or performing poorly and how you have exposure to that can give you some insight into where you might want to reposition in order to reach a higher point on that efficient frontier. Gotcha. I wonder if you could give us an idea of some of the common strategies that folks can use when doing their risk budgeting. Yeah, I think one of the most common ones that comes up is sort of the enhanced beta or risk parity strategy. So these are essentially aimed to spread your risk budget equally across several asset classes to create a portfolio that is both more efficient and less volatile. One way to achieve this is by decreasing the weight of your riskiest asset class 
so that its share of risk in the total portfolio aligns with the share of risk of your less risky asset classes. And in order to reach that point, you do end up with a portfolio that has much less weight in the riskiest asset classes and much higher weight in, in the less risky asset classes. So it does imply to an extent a decrease in the portfolio's overall expected return, which is not always going to fit with the objectives of all investors. Um, but I think another way that that investors use this approach probably more commonly is to apply leverage to their allocations to one of the less risky asset classes. So if you have a higher appetite or tolerance for risk, creating this leverage allows you to increase the expected return of the portfolio while keeping within that theory of, of having the risk parity criteria. But it does require you to assume more total risk at the portfolio level overall. As a charter holder, you know that the CFA curriculum preaches assessing risk tolerances is really is the starting point in building a portfolio before return expectations. But in practice, those things often get reversed uh, with return goals being input first and then risk assessed as a second step, a sort of how can I hit my client's long-term goals? And oh, by the way, don't swing from the fences along the way. Or, you know, I guess better would be, you know, try to tap efficient alpha sources that deliver more punch per unit of risk. I'm interested in this idea of making a deliberate attempt to start with risk and build up from there. My question though is, is how do you incorporate the return expectations? How, how do you get to the finish line? Is, that, is it an iterative process? So I'll start by saying that part of the philosophy of this approach is that the best way to achieve your return goal is to focus on risk. I think the idea that constructing portfolios with risk management at the forefront of the process can help investors to better stick to their investment plan and their allocations long-term, and especially throughout turbulent periods, which should theoretically result in better performance outcomes. But really, the, the primary goal of the risk budgeting process is not just to minimize risk, but rather to provide a framework for you to find the best quality portfolio, which in turn enables the portfolio to outperform. So what that looks like in practice you would typically start by calculating what proportion of the overall portfolio's risk can be attributed to each asset class and then back into new proportions for each asset class so as to optimize the level of risk and return that you're taking. So to answer your question, yes, it can be a bit of an iterative process to get to an allocation that an investor is comfortable with from a risk point of view that also satisfies the required return objectives. Traditionally, mathematically speaking, you would start by estimating an absolute contribution to risk, and then you would move on to looking at each asset class's marginal contribution to risk to see what happens as you dial up or down individual allocations, and through that process, come up with some optimal level of allocation. But I think one way to more explicitly build your return requirements into the process, instead of just looking at you know portfolio risk, is to budget using a risk-return ratio. So for example, you can use the ratio of excess return to marginal contribution to risk, which is very similar to sharp ratio in some senses. And this shifts the focus to maximizing your return per unit of risk so that you're better positioned to focus on return expectations throughout the risk budgeting process. With this scenario, the optimal allocations to each asset class would theoretically occur when your ratio of excess return to marginal contribution is equal across asset classes and is simultaneously equal to the sharp ratio of the total portfolio. I think another way that I want to add on 
to incorporate return expectations and in, into the process as well is again going back to this focus on factors or common return drivers to ensure that the portfolio can be tilted towards winning factors and away from losing factors so i mentioned before if you have two different asset classes with common return drivers it's highly likely that they're going to end up performing somewhat similarly under various economic conditions and so examining how much your contribution to portfolio risk and return is coming from these various return drivers is another important lens through which you can assess the portfolio's performance. Specifically, I think this is where risk-based performance attribution frameworks can come into play, where you're incorporating the volatility and correlation assumptions from an ex-ante risk model and translating the actual impact on your portfolio performance that's coming from each of these factors. This can be a really interesting supplement to a more traditional Brinson type of attribution framework that many investors are probably looking at today because it helps, again, identify areas where you perhaps have an unintended factor bet that ends up detracting from the value that you're adding through asset allocation or stock selection at other places. And having that insight and being able to reflect on what helped or hurt the portfolio performance over some given period of time can give you additional clarity in terms of where you want to focus that risk budget going forward. So we're down to our final question here, Reshma, and it's a two-parter. What was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? That's a great question. My first job in the industry was actually as a consultant at Factset, working with large asset owners and insurance teams across the Midwest. And I was working to support and improve their analytics workflows across various teams and various asset classes. I think if I could offer myself one big piece of advice going back to that time, it would be that it's important to be bold, to take risks, and not to be afraid to do things that may feel a little bit daunting. In my personal career journey so far, I've been fortunate to be in an environment where I felt empowered to do this. But even still, it's never easy to stray away from what you're familiar with or what you're comfortable with. And at some point, you realize that a certain level of discomfort is really necessary to push yourself further and to grow. So once you start to do that and learn to take calculated risks, I think it can open the door to new possibilities and opportunities that you may not otherwise have considered. And the, the biggest piece, I think, is that even if you fail or you don't quite reach the outcome that you were expecting, you'll still end up learning something valuable about yourself and about the decision that you made. I love that the part of your answer there, Reshma, was uh, taking calculated risks. It's very on brand for our conversation today. I've been speaking today with Reshma Rajagopalan, Quant and Analytics Specialist at FactSet. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Reshma. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.